Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Immersive Medical Podcast. Today, we are bringing you Luke Copeland, ICU nurse. Luke is originally from the Midwest, got his nursing degree from Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island, and has been working as a nurse in San Diego for five years and is now an ICU nurse. This is boots on the ground. This is new, youthful, energetic nurse hitting the system hard and telling us what they're seeing, the challenges they're facing, and what they think would be a good solution. One of my favorite things that we talk about during this episode with him is what he wishes he had when he went through nursing school, the challenges mm -hmm. he faces, what, what would have been better um, now that he's actually doing the job. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And I remember he was specifically just outside of his hospital in his scrubs, just got off a shift. <laughs> That's right. So all of you listening, if you have not watched this on YouTube yet, you're going to see Luke Copeland in his scrubs, in his car, right outside the hospital, because we are interviewing people who are in the thick of it. And we're pleased to bring you Luke Copeland. Okay, Luke Copeland, welcome to the Immersive Medical Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Luke. Well, I'm currently a medical ICU nurse in San Diego, California. Uh, I've been in the ICU for about a year and a month or month and a half now. Um, still a little bit of a new environment for me, but this past year has been quite the journey for sure. It's been, you know, ups and downs, you know, both myself and for my patients. Um, you know, I previously worked on a floor where it was kind of like in between an acute care and an ICU. We call it a PCU floor, um, which that was where I actually really started to become a nurse. And um, I basically was thrown right into the mix when COVID hit, um, you know, when I... Oh, I see. Yeah. Quick question. Yes, sir. What is acute care? So acute care would be, let's say you broke your ankle, you know, you, Connor, you broke your ankle, right? I did break my ankle, yes, so, in college, you were there. <laughs> oh, I know, sadly. And <laughs> no, so when you break your ankle, you're a pretty healthy individual, right? Not a lot of um, other issues. I try to be. Your mobility is pretty good, that sort of thing. So you would go to the hospital, they would repair your whatever break you kind of have in your ankle, your leg, whatever it may be. You go to an acute care orthopedic floor, and you would be there for one to maybe three days, and then you would go home. Now, that was the only thing you really came in for. Mm -hmm. it, it's Your acuity is how much care and how much help you need on a floor. So you being a healthy individual, other than your broken ankle, you're stable enough to go to an acute care floor. Where like we might okay, have I see. you know, EKG or other certain types of things continuously, whereas like in the ICU, all my patients are on telly, you know, I do vitals 15 minutes, every 15 minutes to an hour, depending on, you know, what kind of medications they're getting, that sort of thing. Right. So, you know, that would be your difference. And typically, obviously, in ICU, you're critically ill, you have multiple you know, right. organ failure systems that could be potentially going downhill at any time, you know, in your stay, versus, again, with the whole broken ankle situation, your broken ankle is your only major issue. So mm -hmm. um, that would be, you know, so, acute to ICU. I think we need to address the elephant in the room. So you guys know each other, right? So that's how you got on our podcast, right? Connor mm -hmm. gave you a, a, a call up. So how do you guys know each other? How are you acquainted? Luke, you want to take this one? Sure. Uh, so Connor and I 
were lucky enough to be roommates when we went to high school together. So we went that's awesome. to school and um, we just got randomly paired together. And little did we know that we were getting paired with someone that was identical to each other and they <laughs> made wrist, you know, all that stuff. So we, we played hockey, lacrosse, you know, uh, Connor's a little bit different on blood, you know, compared to me. Maybe that's <laughs> so wait a minute, this whole like broken ankle thing, is, is this how, is this, did you like Nancy Kerrigan him when he was skating by to get the goal or something like <laughs> a... hit him right in the ankle? Well, so you know, we became really close friends at uh, school or in high school. And so when we went to, when we decided to go to college, we were looking and we both found a college that we really liked on the East coast. And we were like, do we want to do this, dude? Should we go together? And so we ultimately went to college together and you know what happens in college, you're on your own, you are <laughs> hanging out with friends, I won't say anything else. And All right. And you ended up in healthcare and now you're saving lives. That is a great story. Yeah. <laughs> We're not perfect, right? I mean. <laughs> All right. So let's let's get on track here. So I'm really excited that uh, you joined us today because Thank you. effectively you're exactly the type of person that we wanted to talk to today, which is frontline in the weeds. You're getting your hands dirty. You're getting your, your boots dirty. You are healthcare today, right? You represent this population who is trying to push our healthcare to the next level and give care to people who come into the hospital who end up sick. And um, I actually really love that you're relatively new to the profession because I have tons of questions for you about how technology has impacted, you know, your learning and where you're at today. So sure. let's just dive right in. So first question for you, Luke, yeah. what was your education like compared to actually becoming an ICU nurse? And now you're standing there using the equipment. Was the edu the equipment old in your, in your uh, educational environment versus the newer equipment on scene? Tell me a little bit about that experience transitioning from student to professional. So student to professional is definitely a hard, hard thing to do. It's not impossible. Everybody does it right. You know, nursing school. We were just talking about this at work the other day where nursing school really sets you up to be a competent, safe nurse. And I don't think just the school that I went to, it's kind of across the board. Once you actually get into the clinical setting, you know, uh, different hospitals, facilities use different technology. And so it's really kind of understanding how or what you're trying to accomplish through the technology, whatever that may be, because obviously today we have so much, you know, medical technology and it's advanced so much further than it was, say, 30 years ago. And so just trying to navigate, you know, as is this the intention or, and then if there's an issue with the technology, okay, where was the end goal? Where, what was that technology supposed to get us from here to there? And so nursing school, I think allows you to understand that doesn't necessarily set you up or fully train you, if you will, to be, um, you know, a hundred percent on whatever type of vital signs machine you're even using or whatever procedure you're doing or whatever it may be. It's then getting to that hospital taking that information as a student, knowing, okay, this is the end goal. This is where we want to be. Now, what's the path or what's the road, you know, um, almost like going through competencies of, you know, understanding these are the steps. Now, if I encountered this along the way, um, where does the technology fit in? So maybe not having the full hands-on, because I'll say this, I 
probably learned more in the past five years of being a nurse than I did in the four years of being or, you know, going to nursing school where all I was doing was education. So even just getting your hands on technology, being able to use what you learned, like I just talked about in nursing school, but then taking that information, not staying too locked into the whole book smarts, you know, trying to do the textbook because sadly in healthcare, it's not always textbook. It's not always going to be cut and dry, black and white, back and forth. It's, you know, there's going to be some gray area to it. So the understanding and whatnot is really will, you know, help you bridge that in terms of knowing the technology, knowing what the end goal is, and then facilitating, you know, whatever path you have to take to get to it. Not just staying in one lane, not staying one direction. Yeah you know, following kind of, okay, this is where we need to be. I can go this way and then I can cut back to the end goal that way or whatever it may be. So, so a, a lot of our listeners want to be just like you when they grow up, right? They want to be an ICU nurse. And you said five years. So that means what, four years nursing, one year, year and a half ICU. So you earned some wings before you got into critical care. Is that correct? Definitely. Yeah. And so that's an important thing for people to understand who want to be like you. For sure that you kind of have to follow the staircase up. You don't come out of school and walk into an ICU, right? Sure. And, you know, some some people can. You know, I, I do work with some nurses that have only ever been ICU nurses. And, you know, I've seen some nurse. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, like, in, in the ICU specifically, and I'll talk kind of back, I'll touch back on this whole, you know, nursing school and training and technology. When I went to the ICU, I spent three months, my first three months on orientation, I wasn't even in the setting completely the whole time. I was going to classes. I was like, we were doing internal classes. So specifically just my unit and the new nurses that were coming on for what we call like, we call new, uh, new nurse, um, like cohorts, but it's just to train you. If you came from another profession to now get adapted to being in an ICU. And this is so sort of like organization. Yeah, yeah, the professional organization had their own classes. You're not talking about going back to your college for these classes, right? Correct, yes. The organization did, yes, sorry. Got mm -hmm. it. That's very much like uh, continued education, except for your like, continued education onboarding in the way we do ICU here at such and such hospital. Exactly, 100%. Yep. Mm -hmm. So Very cool. And it was, you know, I felt like I was almost even back in nursing school because I'd been a nurse for almost three and a half Yeah. And all through the thick of COVID. Like, I mean, I started my nursing career into COVID, basically. I, I wow. am an independent nurse in August of 2019. And then, yeah. obviously, tw you know, beginning of 2020 was, you know, whenever. This is when You're everything like, went right downhill. <laughs> yeah. It, Nursing's wonderful. Everyone wants to be here. I'm helping. What's this disease coming? Oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, I still. And everything changed. I remember when we had to first start wearing masks and everybody was like, whoa, like this must be getting kind of serious or like, you know, it was like in the hospital and then just obviously we know what happened after that, but it was, um, so that was like how I started out, but, uh, you know, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. So that's all right. So now that we're coming through COVID, right. Sure. Um, how has, how have things changed for you professionally as a nurse on this end of the pandemic? Uh, Ooh, that's a good question. Things that have really, I mean, the answer may be none, right? Is everything still the same? Uh, you know, I would say relatively, obviously, with the COVID numbers and, you know, uh, the vaccine and that sort of thing, I think we've really kind of overcome the severity when we first, you know, when COVID first hit. Right. I mean, ICUs were full and I, I wasn't even there. I was on the PCU 
And I only hear now right. the war stories of what's happened, you know, throughout the times. And truthfully, even on the PCU level, I was going to say this, PCU is progressive care, still a critical care unit, one step down, but still critical care. And so, I mean, I, right. I mean, I've seen a patient that was, you know, on BiPAP, they didn't, the family didn't want to intubate. That was just part of their, you know, the patient's wishes didn't want to intubate. So they were on BiPAP for no joke a week. And they had like breakdown all along here, along their face, skin breakdown on their face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was, uh, I, I, it was my patient, but they, uh, they re removed life support after the BiPAP was life support at that point, giving hundred percent oxygen, helping the patient breathe as well. And they said that the patient basically passed away in like five minutes from just removing the mask. And so, yeah, wow. yeah, it, you know, it was pretty hard times back then. Now, I think what has changed for me is understanding all of that, not on an ICU level. And now coming into the ICU, I really have a good understanding of how to handle both my patients and talk to them. Now, a lot of them aren't always awake or alert. They're intubated. They're sedated. They can't barely speak to me or speak for themselves or speak to their family. So I'm talking to family a lot and trying to convey kind of this message or, you know, talk about, you know, these things kind of with you guys and explain things and really, you know, honing in on my understanding of, you know, whatever disease process that they're experiencing and being able to say, this is what you should expect. Or, you know, it's, it's not looking, you know, it, the prognosis is not, um, right. It, it, it I'm not saying, I, I try not to. They're critical. It's an ICU, right? I, I try not to. So they're walking a line and you are keeping them from crossing over the line with your powers of an ICU nurse. That's, that, that, so we call it the end. That's what, something else. When I went to the ICU, they were like, you're the final stop now. So right. patients either come to you and they get better or they now, you know, pass on. And so it's, it's something definitely hard. It takes, you know, an emotional toll. I try to put my whole heart and, you know, everything that I got into my patients and their families. And, um, mm -hmm. but it, you, you got to just really manage and balance both the good and the bad. Look at the positives. Don't dwell on the negatives. You know, um, I, again, I don't like to speak in absolutes and, you know, go, go one way or the other because sure. I've seen some crazy things where I'm like, I thought that patient was going to pass away and they ended up living and they made it. Yeah. So we're definitely so it sounds like a pretty you. go ahead it sounds like a pretty intense exercise in bedside manner is that something that like you worked on in nursing school or was practiced at all or was it just kind of throw you to the wolves and you figure out how to be a good bedside you know have good bedside manner uh you know we talked about it in nursing school i don't remember it ever being like a high emphasis or like you know obviously you got to have some bedside manner and you know it, I feel like it comes down to the person. I'm a people's person. I enjoy talking with people. I enjoy making conversation, getting to know them. And as a nurse now, I've really embraced that role of being that front line, being that connect between the patient and the doctor or, you know, the other individuals that I have, my employees or my coworkers and, um, you know, really trying to be an advocate. That's our role, right? As a nurse, be advocates for the patient, do what's best for the patient. Always look, even if it's not maybe what you want to do or, you know, the ideal situation, if it's the patient wishes, you know, um, trying to really think that it's not just the machine there, or it's not just a, you know, piece of technology. There's a person sitting in that bed that I need to, you know, treat. Right. Human being. Right. You know, re always remember that. That's one of my big things now is, 
Um, I don't always get to talk with my patients, but knowing that that's a person, that's not a piece, you know, it's not a computer. It's not a piece right. that it has no real say or that sort of thing. So can you speak a little bit to, uh, just a little bit, the differences of being a traditional nurse, floor nurse and an ICU nurse. And the reason why I want to break this down is because my experience working with nurses in the hospitals back when I was a tech, yeah. Um, and a, and a paramedic, right. Delivering them. We stabilize them in the emergency department and we're running them to you yep. and then you're going to keep them going and then send them back out the door. Right. Sure. And they're going to walk. They're going to, they're going to roll out happy, smiling. Sure. Okay. So the ratios are different Correct. because your workload is different. And I think uh, this is important for people to understand both who um, are thinking about a career in nursing, who want to be an ICU and ICU nurse and aren't sure. So can you speak to a little bit about like your patient to nurse ratios? And when you have one patient, like what does that mean as far as your workload? Because you're looking at multiple pumps, multiple bags, respirators, a lot more. And then I shouldn't say a lot more. It's a lot more per patient because the floor nurses are also supposed to be what four to one then they end up at six to one then they end up at ten to one and there's a pandemic I, and they're ten they're like oh my gosh i can't handle this we were at, so tell us a little bit about you we were at eight to one for uh so let me tell you about that. in icu no 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 on pc on the floor yep, on the floor holy four to moly. one and there would be our like peak crisis time where it was like all hands on deck we had nurses from like the surgery, you know, our surgery department and that sort of thing coming over and basically just being on the floor and helping us. And I would have six to eight patients some night, but then I'd also have a nurse that kind of worked underneath me as my like helper. And so, right. you know, some of the more mundane tasks, uh, I would really, you know, kind of be like, okay, you go do that. And I I'll focus on the big picture stuff for each of the patients. Sure. You, know, you don't have to get the full story. And that also really helped me. I feel of, kind of understanding different patients and, you know, knowing the angles for how we provide care in, you know, whatever they're experiencing, whether, you know, whatever type of situation they were in. And so, um, you know, being able to break that down and follow, okay, so this needs to be done at this point. It almost gave me some manager, you know, management skills in a way, but obviously not in a business setting, Sure, like the care and, you know, that, um, making sure that whatever needed to get done at whatever time, um, in terms of like, yes, the ratios are huge, I would say. And tell us about ICU. Tell us what is it like for you as a nurse to be in the ICU with how many patients and what's that like? So in the ICU, we have two to one and that's certain patients. Now, if we talk about some, you know, high risk, some lower frequency type of uh, like patients, devices, like we have something called an intraaortic balloon pump for patients with heart failure. So we'll, that'll be a one-to-one -one patient. That's a critical, critical, critical patient, right? If they, if they have an issue with the balloon pump, you know, they're going to be one-to-one -one patients. So, you know, that nurse needs to be there, needs to hear the alarms, needs to know what's happening at all times. Because if that pump stops or has a malfunction or an issue, I mean, that patient could code at any minute or any second. So, uh, so just to be clear, that means one-to-one -one means one patient for one nurse. And when you said code, it basically means die. Correct. Right. It basically means, OK, their heart is no longer functioning like it's supposed to. Correct. They have now coded. Mm -hmm. Alarm bells go off and everyone dives in to get them back to a place where you can now manage this on your own. Correct. Yep. Mm -hmm. And typically. And so that one patient, tell us how many pumps, how many bags, what are we looking at? 
I wish I could send you guys a picture, show you a picture right now, but the, I mean, we'll have two IV pumps, four channels, uh, or well, two on each side, but four channels per pump, a total of eight drips. You know, I think that's the most I've ever seen on top of having lines, an A line, you know, a PA line. So a PA line is a catheter that will typically insert through your neck right here, and it'll go all the way into your right, uh, Right, go through your right atria, through your right ventricle, into your pulmonary artery, at which at that point we'll monitor certain pressures, you know, see, really see how your heart is functioning on a pressures level. And I know it's, I'm not even going to get into it because it, you know, is kind of hard to explain and just do a crash course on. But, um, you know, having those different lines and devices and things to monitor and, you know, noticing the very minute change that maybe isn't anything, but also just being able to recognize and be like, okay, now that looked different earlier. You know, maybe it's not necessarily an issue right now, but it is good to either talk about, address, bring up sort of thing. And with only one patient, you really get that opportunity to immerse yourself in everything that they're doing and, or, you know, everything. I love you use the word immerse. Yes. I'm going to bring an image up and so you can speak to it. Okay. All right. So um, if you guys are listening on the audio podcast, please pop on over to the YouTube channel when you get a chance to take a look at this. So Luke, I just, I basically just Googled ICU pumps. This is actually typical from what I'm used to seeing, yep. which is like, look at the tangled mess yep. and it's organized chaos oh, yeah. because the nurse knows what's going on there. And the reason why, if I can just, guess here for a minute generally speaking the reason why these cords uh tubes get all tangled is because you have to turn the patient clean them turn the patient constantly moving them around and they're moving stuff over their arms if they wake up and then you know you have to unplug this and roll it over and then three hours later you're like oh man now i have to untangle these because they don't start that way yep uh, but please speak to what we're looking at here. So, you know, yes, that's a you know great example of what you would see in the ICU. Um, th those are exactly the pumps we use, the Alaris pumps. Um, like I said, two channels on each side. It holds a maximum of four for, per pump. Um, the center part is what we call the brain. And that's what actually you, you know, will program and that sort of thing. And then each channel has like its individualized, you know, section on the pump itself. And so, um, you know, those lines and sometimes... I've noticed this as well, that patients are critical and you got to do things quick and you don't have time for it to be pretty and nice and, you know, look all, you know, put together. You got to just go, you got to do things. Right. It's very utilitarian. Yes, exactly. You got to be save lives, make it happen. I got to hook this up. I got to get this in. And I remember like when I first joined the ICU, I had one of my uh, preceptors say that to me where I was, you know, on that kind of PCU level of like, you know, handling things. And she was like, she like ripped things open and was like, we don't have time to be worrying about like softly opening it, get to it, make it happen. And I was like, okay, all right, let's, you know, get after it sort of thing. And, um, yeah, that, you know, you'll have multiple, multiple drips. Line tracing is a big thing. I do it at the beginning of every shift, especially with something like that, because you have, you know, like I said, four, four to 12 channels. That one had three pumps and I don't know how many were actually hooked up, but four to 12 channels where you could have continuous life-saving medications, you know, going through whatever, whatever it may be, whether it's like potassium sure. that's running or if it's levofed that's running. Levofed is a vasoactive drug that we use for hypotension when, you know, patients are septic or uh, sure. you know, experiencing other types of. And there may be a lot going on here, right? You got multiple pumps, like in this image here, there's that, this white thing right here is a pressure bag. Yes. So that means that this 
pressure bag is squeezing another bag to get infused as quickly as possible. Yep. Faster than gravity can do it. In addition to multiple pumps, and each one of these channels is infusing at a certain drip at a certain rate. Right? Yep. That's a lot to handle. This is why you're two to one. Yep, exactly. And you're ready for this. Sometimes when patients are that sick, we'll even go one to two, one patient to two nurses sometimes, depending on what the situation is. Now, sometimes that's more surgical and trauma related for like some of the, you know, really, really serious, you know, bad cases of, you know, MVAs and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, it, it happens in our ICU. We take care of primarily patients that have chronic issues and now have progressed to that, you know, end of life sort of stage, but not necessarily in a, you know, hospice sort of palliative kind of way, but more of an acute chronic issue, if that makes any sense. So, um, but yes, those, you know, that's an exact, you know, most of our patients, if they have an A-line, that's also what that white bag would be for is, um, you know, pressure for monitoring an arterial line. So that would give us constant, endless blood pressure, which there, I was like, oh, these are awesome. Cause then I don't have to take blood pressures. I can just always see my blood pressure at all times. You know, it was great, but then they can be very finicky. You know, it's an arterial line, right? So our arteries, uh, they send blood to your extremities or any part of your body veins return blood back to your heart. So it being an artery, you really have to monitor even that extremity of, okay, just the hand. If they have a radial art line, you just have to monitor the hand to make sure that blood is still making it to that hand. We didn't just cut off blood supply from that. And sometimes it's also monitoring even just what we're doing interventionally to make sure that we're not further adding to the problem or making sure that, you know, okay, yes, we're still on track. This is what we're expecting. You know, again, going through the understanding and the sequence of, what what the end goal is or where we're trying to what we're trying to achieve that seems like a lot to handle and a lot to think about all the time it it, um, it can be it definitely can be. so how do you maintain your how do you keep up your skills do you have to go into classes once a month or is it more of just you know you're you're doing this all the time so it's just in your brain all the time or is it do you do have to re-up on your training i think it's a little of both truly i do think it's a little of both i think it comes from having that hands-on like i said nursing school sets you up but then having yeah. the hands-on and being able to be in the setting and physically you know there's things now that i i know just because i've been at the hospital on my floor i never learned it in nursing school not because especially for people that like you that i know you know, you learn by doing, it, and I'm sure that there's a ton of people like that. So I'm sure that would that help seems like out a statement immensely for this industry. Learn by doing. There's a mm -hmm. lot you got to learn by doing in healthcare. Hundred percent. And you know, it was something that they. So a little more about me. I come from uh, my mom isn't was a nurse. She's retired now, and my brother's also a nurse. So I had a, a lot of experience through them and seeing it through them. But it wasn't until I. I started doing my own stuff and getting my hands on all that stuff and being able to take care of patients and be at the bedside, have these critical conversations with patients about, you know, not easy topics. It, it's not something you can really replicate or duplicate in you know, right. the grand scheme of it. it. It's really something you do have to have your boots on the ground and doing it, uh, you know, on that end. Hey, Connor, VR Patients has just released their revolutionary infusions authoring tool. This isn't just a simple update. It's a leap forward in medical simulation. That sounds promising, Devin. Tell us more. 
Well, with this tool, educators can now take VR simulations to the critical care level. Imagine having up to 10 bags and 10 pumps with not just 3D models, but real-time infusions where the bags drain in real time. You can build your own formulary, use a calculator within VR, manage roller clamps, titrate, pause, resume, and so much more. <laughs> that sounds intricate. It is, but it's also intuitive, much like sketching out a simulation on paper. Plus, you can infuse to any port, multi-lumen, on any anatomical site. And the best part, it now includes the industry's first programmable VR smart pump. <laughs> Impressive. For those who want to make the most of this tool, where should they go? To do a deep dive into these groundbreaking features and discover how you can author the future of healthcare simulation, visit vrpatients.com. There you have it, folks. The future isn't just happening to you. You are authoring it. Check out vrpatients.com. So I want to want to switch gears a little bit and start getting into some meaty uh, questions here. And I really appreciate your time, by the way. I can see you're you're in your car. You got your scrubs on. So we want to make sure that we get you back into the life saving you know rooms of the hospital. No worries. Um, so let's just stay on really quick. What you were just talking about, all this the the differences in in ICU nursing versus regular nursing, and how it was so much different when you went through school and then trial by fire, and now you're there and you're constantly upkeeping your skills and learning new stuff. Yeah. So what would you tell someone who wants to be like you when they grow up and they're, they're coming out of nursing school or maybe they're an RN and they're looking at becoming a critical care nurse. How would you, what advice would you give them before they approach it? It's going to be a struggle, but that doesn't mean what's going to be a struggle. Can you be more specific? Sure. The whole, I would say even nursing school, it's not easy. I'll say that. And it's not that it's un, you can't do it or it's, you know, impossible to pass. Everybody does it. Right. But it is challenging. And I find that it, it prepares you both mentally and physically to handle some of these, you know, long, long days of doing homework and then waking up at 6am the next morning to go to clinical. And I mean, to this day, I, I still, I wake up at 530 ish, right around five to 530 and I got to be at work by 6 to 6.30, taking report at 7. It's a lot of mental strength, discipline, that sort of thing. You know, it, it's, like I said, it's, it's a struggle and it's not easy. But the process, you know, going through it, understanding it, trying to, you know, manage all the things that you're dealing with life. And then on top of, like you just said, Connor, of a lot to handle once I actually get to work. And then trying to not necessarily disconnect from my own personal life, but okay, now this is, this is my main focus for, you know, the next 12 hours I am, you know, devoting everything that I have mentally and physically to taking care of or keeping this patient alive. Um, you know, as you know, students, you know, you, I, I challenge you to push yourself, you know, put yourself in uncomfortable positions, put yourself in situations where you maybe do feel lost. Obviously you're a student, so you should feel like that. There is going to be curves and learning that you're going to have to overcome, but challenging yourself. Feeling uncomfortable is normal. I felt uncomfortable all the way through nursing school, even up to now. I've been a nurse for five years and I still come into the setting sometimes and I'm like, eh, you know, there. if you are a know-it-all or you act like a know-it-all, I think that's a bad sign. I think that that, you know, it shows like almost complacency and you're, you're kind of like, oh, I got that, you know. No, always come in with an open mind, open attitude, be willing to listen to anybody, be willing to listen to whatever education, idea, training, whatever it may be, you know, 
having an open mind. And then once you're actually in the setting, eh, maybe it wasn't that helpful, but you still understood it. You still have that knowledge in say another year when you do need it, or maybe you do come across something that you hadn't experienced up until that one point. So, um, right. You have to be willing to continue to learn. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Continuous. So especially as technology is changing and growing, right? Which we're going to talk about here in a minute. I want our listeners to stick around because we're going to talk about chat GPT in a minute and how it's impacting healthcare. And have you seen the new Bing chat GPT integration? I, I, I have not actually. Would you like to see it today? Cause I'm going <laughs> to, all right, we're going to do a little search query in a minute. Here. I'd love to, uh, before we do, I would love to hear some stories from you boots on the ground. So, uh, can you describe a like a particularly challenging situation that you faced as a nurse, uh, or you, uh, let's say an ICU nurse specifically? So in the last year and a half, a, a particularly challenging situation or patient? Sure. Um, you know, one that really stood out to me was uh, it was an older individual, a seventy, I think it was seventy to seventy-five year old man. You know, relatively healthy, obviously advanced age. You know, relative slightly advanced age, you know, now with medicine and whatnot, people are getting a little bit older and older that 80 to 90 is now I would say more of like the, you know, where I see most of my patients that are critically sick and ill. But this individual was, you know, he planned on going on a vacation. His family uh, sadly found him down. They had cameras around the house, hadn't seen him moving for a little while. They had found him down, you know, the nurse or the daughter that arrived was a nurse. She started CPR, called 911. They were able to get um, ROSC, which is ROSC is a medical term that we use can, uh, to its return of spontaneous circulation. So if a patient loses a pulse, you know, have no blood pressure, whatever it may be, you do restore a heartbeat, a heart rhythm to some degree and are able to get a pressure and that sort of thing. Uh, anyways, moving forward. So this patient, you know, we intubated them, sedated them. They were on some vasopressors, I believe. Um, and so I kind of was managing the understanding. How did this person get to this point? Because all we know is they were found down. We don't know what happened from, we'll say Monday. And I think they were you know, found on Wednesday. So there's two and a half days of, we don't know what happened. You know, Upon intubation, we found that the patient had some what looked to be like food or bile particles. So potentially aspiration, still don't know. Um, you know, there was, uh, I don't think he took his meds one night. Could have been just a missed medication. You know, um, I don't know if he maybe took too much medication the night before or the, you know, in the morning he passed out, you know, he got, maybe it was hypotensive, fell to hit his head, whatever. So I'm taking care of this patient. A lot of ifs, a lot of like what's going on. You know, we're still trying to figure out what got him to this point. We go for an MRI and I remember this was the first time this ever happened to me where I took a patient down for an MRI. I was still in the MRI room and I got a call and the tech was like, Luke, the doctor's on the phone for you. I was like, I, that's not good. Yeah. I was like, we haven't even <laughs> yet. I'm trying to get this patient off the bed. We visit. And sure enough, he calls me and is like, what happened to this patient? Do we know? And I was like, no, no, we, you know, that's what we're trying to We're trying to take a picture of him right now. Yeah. And sure enough, well, he was the radiology doctor and he was like, this patient I see. has, has uh, sustained a severe anoxic brain injury. And you could see that there was just the whole back part of his brain was completely 
you know, uh, whited out. And that's typically, you know, uh, an indication for an injury or some sort of anoxic injury in the brain. And so, you know, this, the, the, I could hear it in the doctor's voice when he called me, it was like, this, this is not good. And, you know, jumping forward a little bit now, me understanding. Before you jump forward, we should tell people anoxic. What's that mean? Uh, so that's lack of oxygen. So this lack of oxygen. Yeah. So this patient either, you know, could have been a clot, could have been, you know, potential hemorrhaging. And, you know, if he had a blown artery, right. maybe there's multiple factors. We don't truly know sort of thing. Yeah. We should probably actually clarify that even further. So when you think of oxygen, you think about what's in your lungs, but the, the heart pumps oxygenated blood to the rest of the brain and so when they say anoxic what they're really saying is the lack of oxygenated blood mm -hmm. to that part of the brain which when you're talking about a clot you're talking about a little piece of something that plugged up the tubing in the brain that and the the end from the from the clot on all of that brain tissue is not getting fresh oxygen blood anymore correct all right what'd you guys discover this is fascinating so we uh well, I mean, I, you know, we found that anoxic brain injury and we still, I mean, we knew that the patient had that, but we still didn't really know, or there was no true answer as to what caused it. You know, if you see someone fall, they hit their head, they develop a brain bleed. That's pretty cut and dry, right? We know the steps right there. This patient was just found down for multiple days and per, you know, video, you know, surveillance footage, we knew that they hadn't gotten up for about two days prior to that. So they, we don't, you know know if something happened because obviously the patient was found in his bedroom so we don't know if something happened in the bedroom on the way to the bedroom all that you know we're up in the air about it so now jumping forward the you know we have this anoxic brain injury trying to just say well the ifs the ifs i was able that that was one day the following day was the day that the neurologist was going to discuss the results with the family that was particularly hard and that's you know where it comes back to these are people you know, we're not, you know, it's a business and this is my job and this is what I do for a living. And I, I do have to have a sense of rinse and repeat because if I let it bring me down so much, I, I'm not going to survive in this job or I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to care for my patients, each one, every single day to my hundred or max potential. And so I, I was able to sit in on this meeting with the neurologist and the family and just hear them discussing and how they navigated the whole process of explaining okay this is you know just like i'm explaining to you guys of this is what happened this is what we for the mri we still don't know exactly you know what the situation was but seeing the family being there for that conversation you know has really resonated with me and you know it definitely i got a little teary yet i'll be honest i you know i mean it's heartbreaking it is it really is i mean the, these families were bawling, yeah. wailing because i mean this individual was literally supposed to go on a vacation that weekend like, you know, right. he was supposed to go and he was independent. Like he was supposed to go on his own, didn't require a lot of care. And, um, you know, I, I want to be the best that I possibly can for people who are going to experience this. And I want, right. I want them to know that they can put all their trust into me and know that I'm going to, I'm going to do as much as I possibly can. Now, everybody's going to die at some point. That's just the way of life, you know? It just depends. It's the one true fact of the world, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and I find in the ICU, some of these, you know, patients and family are trying to fight it. And it's, it's not something, you know, don't throw in the towel, don't give up. But at the same time, that's the one thing that we all share in life, right? It doesn't matter, you know, race, 
gender, right. nothing. It's all the same. So um, we're all going to die at some point and trying to help patients kind of cope with that and help the families cope with that and understanding that. And, you know, um, it, it's really interesting how technology is going to be impacting healthcare going forward because home technology, you described family checking the cameras mm-hmm. and noticing, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Had they not checked the cameras, or let's just rephrase it, had they not had the technology to be able to check on grandpa yeah. via remote camera, sure. there would be no ROSC. There would be no arriving at his house to get that return of spontaneous circulation because sure. more time would have passed. Right. And as we say in healthcare, time is brain, right? Yeah. You've only got a certain amount of time if the tubes get plugged up to the brain. You got to get that resolved very quickly. And so do you have a card? Time's burning yeah. fast. Yeah. Be fast. Can you read that for us? So he has a card on his badge if you're not watching on the channel. And it is the stroke protocol probably for your hospital, right? That's right. Yeah. What do you got? Read it out. So be fast, right? B-E-F-A-S-T. Balance, eyes, face, arm, speech, time. There you go. So you got to check the patient's balance. Yep. You got to do shit quickly, mm-hmm. right? Yes, absolutely. And that's a, lots of acronyms like that. Um, the Cincinnati Stroke Scale is another one, <laughs> yep. right? That's really famous and um, tons of tons of acronyms in, in healthcare. For sure. Okay, so I, what I love about your story, right? I was like immersed in it for a minute, is that what a great training uh, simulation right. because it's a no-win situation, right? The, the almost part of the training in that is to go through the treatment process of a really challenging patient that you will not learn why you have arrived at this point in the journey yeah. and you're not going to be able to get them out the door successfully sure. because there are certain tissues in the body that do not heal when you unfortunately cut off oxygen to them. Sure. Right. If you wrap a rubber band around your finger and it turns blue, you've got a certain amount of time and it's a lot more time than if oxygen stops going to a certain part of your heart and those cells begin to infarct or die, right. um, like a myocardial infarction. That's a heart attack. Right. Yes. Or the same thing in the brain, mm-hmm. that anoxic brain injury. There's no reperfusing that part of the brain with oxygen and suddenly they start remembering what all the files that were lost from the back part of their brain, mm-hmm. they're gone. That's right. That's right. That's like you said, I mean, time is tissue. So, you know, there you go. Time is tissue. Time is tissue. <laughs> as soon as you notice anything like that, you need to be fast and, you know, make decisions, notify doctors, you know, get, yeah. get interventions going, you know, it's a, coming back to the student as well not overreacting in situations like this, or if, you know, stuff like that does happen, but being able to really, you know, and that comes with experience, but being able to be like, okay, no, this, this needs to be addressed right now. There's no questions. And, you know, some things it's like, okay, well, I noticed it. I'm going to monitor it for now, or, you know, whatever it may be. The patient's vitals are still good. They're not showing any signs, but it is still something to mention or Mm -hmm. just, you know, keep in the back of your mind. So, um, I could also see extreme value in uh, practicing making decisions when they're on those pumps. Oh. So, for example, knowing where all the buttons are, understanding when they beep, what that tone means so you can press the silence button and understand you didn't shut it off. You just silenced that alarm. You know what that's for. It's just a bubble. Yeah. And practicing on multiple bag sets, practicing on multiple pump sets in some simulated environment and being able to 
train for competency on those uh, what, what do I want to call it? Like uh, being able to make multiple decisions at once and looking at multiple little monitors at once. Yeah, definitely. Understanding that's connected to a person mm-hmm. and I need to practice on this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fascinating. And I, you know, I would say specifically in the ICU, I'll, I'll say this as, com- as a, uh, compared to like an acute care, the PCU, you know, you're, you're programming pumps and you're giving medications that way. But in the ICU, it's really that next step up. It's really the, okay, I'm giving boluses of sedation, you know, oh, I need to titrate this, you know, uh, vasopressor, whatever one they're on. I, you are constantly having to almost reconfigure. And I mean, there's a little of like the human component on our end of just being a person and not uh, like you, you, how do I, how do I describe this or how do I explain this? Being able to focus in for that second and okay. All right. So I need to hit this, hit that. Okay. Not yes. reprogramming mm-hmm. it or changing it in any way, or just adding an extra zero or an extra decimal point, all those yeah. things, attention to detail, you know, making sure that, okay, even double checking, you know, I mean, just being, you know, triple checking, if you will, making sure yeah. okay, this is, okay, they should be on this dose. This is exactly what they need to be. Okay. No, this dose isn't working. I need to go up by, you know, I need to go to this or I, I we need to change to this or we need titrate to effect mm, yes. titrate to effect exactly that's very cool so connor that means uh you're gonna scale back or scale up push more fluid or less fluid and you're gonna be measuring the heart heart rate blood pressure respiratory of the patient mm-hmm. and you're gonna increase the dosage based on what you see the numbers changing in their body and then the physician would have given you the orders to do that right they would have said you can titrate to effect within these parameters so you have to be a competent icu nurse and you're the one Who's pressing the buttons? That's very, yeah, very to be able world. to react so quickly. Yeah. And, yes. With how and, things are showing. And, and a lot of times it, it's very autonomous because uh, our orders and our med, you know, med orders specifically in those continuous infusions are preset where I, I can act at any time to change it in terms of going up or down, titrating. But, mm-hmm. you know, getting the order to start off is pretty much, you know, recognizing, okay, this patient's blood pressure is starting to tank. I need to add vasopressin on top of levofed or like, you know, that sort of thing. That's a lot. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So like, you know, having that know-how of like, Oh, okay, well I'm continuously Mac or I'm going up on my levofed pretty quickly and we're still not getting enough pressure. Like I remember I had a patient where there's another memorable patient. This is my first patient that went from walkie talkie to then passing away by the end of my shift. And that one, I still remember it. Like, it was Gary. And so, I mean, I don't think that's bad to say. I didn't give you a last name. No, first name is not a HIPAA violation. You're all good. Right. So, like, I, that's just, I'm trying to make that point of, like, I, I still remember him to this day. And so, it was that where we were maxing out Levo. We added Levo. We uh, made it to, like, 10 to 20 range, somewhere in there. 32 is our max. But I, I got to that within, I don't even remember amount of time. It was like, I just had to keep going up because his pressure was like 60 over 30s or 40s. And so we made it up, you know, to the max dose of Levofed. And even before that, though, I was like, Doc, I am continuously going up. He goes, all right, add the vasopressin. Once you max, add it on. Right. And so, you know, we got to that point. And um, kind of <laughs> recircling back to the whole, like, process okay you know competency attention to detail monitoring every little facet of what you're intervening or what you're doing nothing should never go or nothing should go unturned or unlooked you know you should all right even if you're not addressing it or you know having that why okay well 
why is this happening? My patient's now just slightly tachycardic. Why? There's got to be a reason for it. They were yes. in the 80s. Now they're 110. What's, you know, it's not bad. It's not the worst thing. Their blood pressure is fine. Everything looks good. But why? Right. What's the reasoning for it? Maybe you can be anticipatory for something worse to happen in, say, an hour or two. So, Would it be valuable for you to be able to practice on a simulated Gary again? Definitely. To try again? Definitely. What would that do for you as a, as a nurse? It, you know, it would really... So... It, the training and being able to go through that process would really hone in that kind of, you know, step-by-step, step, the competency of, okay, this is what I need to do next. I need to anticipate this, noticing this, monitoring that. Okay. Well, there's, you know, oxygen still looks good. Okay. That, you know, keep it on the side here, but you know, it's still front and center for, you know, a main issue of what this patient is dealing with. Um, being able to go through a competency and see that patient. I mean, that's a one, that's a once in a, two to two week to month long. I mean, I, I maybe get one of those patients, one of those patients a month. So is it, do you guys call them halos or high acuity, low occurrence or high risk, uh, low frequency? Uh, I, I would say so. We don't, I don't necessarily, we don't necessarily call it okay. that in our hospital or on my, on my unit. But um, yes, I would say like, in, I was one-to-one -one with that patient. So that was a one-to-one -one right. patient where they were critically ill, mm -hmm. continuing to deteriorate. And I needed only and all my attention on that patient. I could not have any other time with another patient. And so, um, you know, being able, like, you know, with the training and having a, right. you know, a program or something to go through with that would definitely, you know, be beneficial in terms of just getting it once in a while. Cause I mean, it could be four months or five months before I have another patient like that. You know, those people, right. but you, but, but you might have another Gary. Exactly. Yes. hundred percent. Exactly. It's definitely coming. Yeah. He's definitely coming back. Yeah. This is the job. Yep. hundred percent. One hundred percent. This is why we want to train for competency, right? right? I mean, it's honestly, it's part of the reason why we're even having a conversation today for our listeners and viewers of the immersive medical channel is because we have to always practice to improve because we are in a field where we're going to get another Gary. Yeah, definitely. That's why we have to have mechanisms in place for our mental health, for our continued education, our improvement processes. So that way, the next time Gary comes in, you've got a little leg up somehow in some facet, even if that leg up is that you're a little more ready. It's one of the things I'm excited about with technology. As, as technology improves, that's another leg up. And us being able to treat and care better for patients and be bigger, faster, stronger, right? We want Luke 2.0 the next time that a carry comes in. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're going to pause here for a second because I think Luke, we lost Luke really okay, quick. Cool. Can you text him? Yes. Hello. Oh, really? <laughs> you turn on the AC? crank it down is he sweating his brains out or something his phone overheated so i told him to crank <laughs> the ac and just put it on amazing the... i think it looks like he's in the is he in the group you all right You're hello alive? i'm alive sorry we're just having such good conversation we overheated the phone over here <laughs> you you gotta did you do you get rosk on your phone i got rosk we got a we got a pressure we got a good rhythm all right 
Good. <laughs> Glad to have you back. Let's keep pushing along because our interview, we're going long. We're running low on time. So we're going to push through the few more questions. So I'm going to ask you a big overarching one. Sounds good. And I want you to put your thinking cap on as someone who is boots on the ground in healthcare. There, that's a beautiful hat. And it, what are, if there was some challenge facing healthcare today that you could help solve, maybe there is something that you want to help impact. What would it be if you were a magician? Sure. What is some challenge in healthcare that's facing healthcare today that you would like to solve? Uh, you know, we've kind of talked about it, but bridging that gap between being a student and then being a professional nurse in the field and, you know, being, cause we're kind of like independent contractors in a way, right? You know, we are, we can go hospital to hospital. I work with nurses that work in multiple hospitals here in, you know, San Diego, um, being able, you know, to have the, you know, Gary, have Gary be a simulation where you can experience exactly what somebody else experienced on another shift or, you know, in that ICU. And, you know, I think, Nursing school does do that. I, I meant to mention, or I was going to mention this earlier, is we had a simulation lab where we'd have dummies, you know, but it it just isn't and wasn't the same. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel it's, the same. Yeah. yeah. And well, a common a common complaint I've heard about mannequins, not just dummies, right? Because they're pretty smart. These mannequins are pretty pretty impressive. Sure. But uh, one of the biggest challenges I've heard facing simulation is uh, people not knowing how to use them. So you just use them for IVs and, and CPU. Right. Yep. Exactly. Um, did you guys use them for all their complexity? We, we did. Like, uh, I remember um, uh, one of our roommates from college, Jake, him and I, we did a simulation where we had a mannequin and basically the monitor, we could see the monitor and the patient would, you know, be in the bed and we would look at his vitals. We would know what's going on with his vitals and we'd have to read and react, you know, to that. Now, you know, like if a patient is bleeding out or, you know, um, th there's just certain things that you can't replicate with a mannequin to what you could do in the setting. So having, you know, a VR, having something that would be able to, you know, truly replicate and you'd be able to see it or experience it. And then as you go through the steps of, okay, now we've stopped the bleeding. Okay. Now we're experiencing this or, you know, and you can't necessarily, you know, you can't do that in say on a mannequin or you can't always have that step-by-step -step that you could do with say a program that would be able to really just go through each step or even have different avenues of that or have five right. different lanes that you could go down based on what intervention what intervention you do and so um you know helping bridge that gap between being a student and you know trainee and that sort of thing to now, you know, whether it's EMS or to now being in the field, being on the front line, I think, you know, trying, that's why, you know, I, I wanted to come and come on this podcast and talk with you guys is really trying to, you know, um, bridge that gap. I want to try to fix the, you know, discrepancy between nurses who are kind of lost, if you will. That's why most hospitals have new grad residency programs in order to get acclimated to working and like, I recommend. So when you say bridge that gap, yes. can I, I kind of want to push back, push on that a little bit, right? Sure. So when you say bridge that gap, you're not just saying warning nursing students, hey, this is tough, you know, get ready. What do you mean by bridge that gap? And I know that you brought this simulation of Gary into it, this halo patient that is really a challenge. And then you want to learn as you migrate over and you bridge that gap into professionalism with these 
really challenging patients. But that's kind of like an infinite world where there's a, there's an infinite number of challenging patients that you can't anticipate. Right. So can you be a little bit more specific about the, you know, the challenge that's facing healthcare? What do you mean by bridge the gap from professional to education what? or backwards, I guess, from education to professional? Um, well, you know, I'll say this, it, it's very noticeable when like with a new nurse or, you know, somebody who's newer to nursing or whenever they are, you know, first coming on as a nurse, it's very noticeable to see that the way that they look at things or, you know, will ask questions and like that sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes nurses can eat their young and, you know, that's been something I, I, I've sometimes dealt with it. Now I'm a little bit more, I would say type A personality where I, I, I can push back a little bit, but not in like a disrespectful way, but just kind of standing my ground on what I believe or how I feel about it in terms of bridging that, you know, bridging the gap there, you know, these simulations of what, you know, specifically, okay, PCU level, this is how you're going to have to go down. You're going to have four patients, three of them, you know, are pretty stable and one of them is going to be relatively critical. So now, okay, you need to manage this of, you know, their blood pressure is starting to tank. Okay. Give them a bolus. Start with that. Okay. Do we need to escalate it? Do we need to get them to the ICU or did the bolus help? Are they, you know, do we give them too much of another medication? Is their heart rate low? You know, whatever it may be, but then also still having that side hustle, if you will, of, I still have three other patients to handle. And like in the, oh, interesting. you know, in the ICU, it's a little bit better because we only have two, right? So I can have a patient crashing. And then thankfully in the ICU, we have a very team oriented way of handling things. So I will, you know, focus all my efforts on that patient and my pod mates will help me pick up the slack on my other patient who's still stable, not experiencing critical right. immediate, you know, needs to be addressed situations. And so, you know, PCU to ICU, same thing though. Having that like, okay, I have a critical patient here. I'm on the floor. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing my med pass. It's first thing in the morning, whatever. And now my patient starts to code or like, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Now I need to delegate. Okay. That patient needs this right now, but this patient is coding. So I need to focus here. I can't go do that. Being able to then delegate, you know, working on having that type of simulation of that internal process or the internal process that we do as yeah. nurses in the hospital. What you're describing right now makes me think of a lot of these nursing accrediting bodies are working on the novice to nurse expert model. Yeah, right. Love that. This idea of getting a nurse from a novice to an expert. Um, now, when you say bridge that gap, is that basically what you're talking about? Is is shortening the amount of time that it takes for a, a nurse to go from novice to expert? So, I'd like to think of it as if you can make every single day a sim day, and you're you're just constantly seeing. Uh, exponentially more patients mm -hmm. than your average, let's say new nurse. Yeah. Then when you're on day one, you're in theory, you've got more competent, you've got more, let's say mental skills training. hundred percent versus like IV skills training. Yes. hundred percent. And, and that's, yes, that's what I'm trying to say is the mental skills training of how to wire your, wire your brain into, you know, figuring out, you know, just management. It's even comes down to time management. That is something for the whole five years of my life that, you know, as a nurse, I have always, always, always tried to find different ways and new ways to time manage and things that I can do differently and ways that I can break down my day. And even I have a little checklist that I use where I write down, okay, this patient needs this med at this time. We have this procedure at this time. And like, you know, um, going through that mental process as opposed to the physical process of inserting or, you know, giving the medication and, even down to just like the pumps as well. Like we talked about earlier, being able to do that, 
process of, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to get this med. But then, oh, in the background, I just hear my pump beeping. Oh, okay. Well, there's a good, you know, trigger in my mind. Boom. I need to go adjust that or my volume's out. And now the pump isn't running because it doesn't want to put air into the patient. So I have to grab a new bag right now. I got to go, even though I'm right in the middle of this task or, you know, and anticipating that, making sure that, oh, well, I got to go do this for an hour, or I'm going to be with this patient for an hour. I should probably hang a new bag of that or, you know, and again, just the mental aspect of it, right. you know, that mental process okay. of what you would experience on a day to day. Cause if I had, you know, been in nursing school and really had that training, cause when you go to clinicals and nursing school, it's about the skills. It's about getting your hands dirty, getting your hands, you know, into whatever, you know, your patients are experiencing. And so it's not necessarily about the behind the scenes, if you will, where you are, you know, you're managing everything time, you know, where, who's coming in, who's coming out visitors, like the side hustle. This, I like the side hustle. The side hustle. There you go. So it's not just what to you're do doing or what medications you're giving, right. but it's also the mental side hustle of everything else that's going on behind right. them. So, mm -hmm. and, and like Connor was saying under pressure. So the next time that you're going to do a simulation, we'll walk in Connor, you do pots and pans, right? I'm going to, I'll bring a TV. <laughs> and we'll just start making a lot of noise and banging right or next to you. And then you got to fix all yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. That's realistic. <laughs> Definitely. So let's do the lightning questions and then we'll wrap up. Connor, you want to start us off? I will start. So Luke, these are completely unrelated to what we have been talking about. They are just fun questions that we like to ask at the end of these interviews. Uh, so we're going to start with what is your favorite color? Favorite color, blue. Nice. What, uh, what's your favorite way to unwind after work? Favorite way to unwind, ooh, I play hockey and golf. And now, not necessarily directly oh, nice. after work, just because I get out really late. Um, but I do, you know, I really look forward to those on my days off, you know, really kind of just getting away, you know, honestly, like put the phone down, just get out there. Golf in particular is something that mm -hmm. I really, like I enjoy now walking golf. I don't just ride in the cart. You know, I kind of get like a little walk into it. It's a little workout. You know, that really is my time to get some exercise. Get some it. exercise. And you ever take your, uh, you ever take your hockey stick out to the putting green, like Happy Gilmore, <laughs> Happy Gilmore and try to put the ball in? Just tap it in. Just tap, tap uh, it. Sadly, in. no, but I'll, right, I'll have ahead, to work Connor. that in at some point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Luke, what is your favorite book you've read? Favorite book. I haven't read a book in And I will not accept that you don't read. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Power of One. It's about a hot. Ooh, mm -hmm. that's a good one. I like that one. I read that. Power of I, One. I read Thank that a you. while ago, but it still resonates me, you know, resonates with me today. And, um, you know, it's just one of those memorable books that I, I read along the way. If you had a superpower, what would it be? Ooh, superpower, definitely fly. Forget a car. I could just fly. I love it. No questions. Don't need a car. Don't need a plane. I got my own transportation. <laughs> uh, if you could travel anywhere in the world, given the opportunity, where would you go? Travel anywhere in the world, uh, no opportunity. I would say, I would say I'd like to go to... Uh, I'd like to go to Thailand, Thailand, and specifically Thailand. Thailand. Go pet an yep. elephant. I, I, 
Um, I would say there's, uh, I don't know exactly or remember where it was, but this is kind of lame, but the hangover, I think it's part two where they go or they have the wedding. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Ooh. That's why you want to go to Thailand. Beautiful. <laughs> I mean, the water, you can't just, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And weren't you giving me a hard time for Googling hangover cures just a minute ago? <laughs> well, Hey, you know, takes and now he's basing his All dream right. vacation off of yeah. the movie. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, if you could have dinner with a historical figure, living or dead, who would it be? Ooh, you're going to like this one. I've said this plenty of times. I actually used this to get into boarding school, and I'll stand by it. Marshall Mathers. Do you know who that is? Eminem. Eminem. Oh, oh, Marshall. Oh my God. <laughs> I do know who Marshall but, Mathers is. But if okay, I said Eminem, you. though, would you have known? So of course. that's I say Mar- Yeah, the blue guy from the commercial, right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> With the big M on his belly. I know exactly who you're talking Mar- about. <laughs> so that sounds crazy, Marshall Mathers. But I I chose I picked Marshall Mathers because I mean he came from the struggle, right? He came from the definition of not having anything, you know, struggling right. through the early parts of his life, mm-hmm. you know, grinding through all of that. And, you know, I I try to tell my patients that as well of like, it doesn't matter what you're experiencing. There's someone next door who's experiencing something just equally as, you know, potentially debilitating or, you know, hard on the life and knowing and trying to understand that mental discipline of, you know, right. Uh, what do I need to do? Keep the nose down, keep grinding, keep doing what you got to do, you know, keep fighting, keep, keep pull, plugging, keep mm-hmm. going forward. And I'd love to hear what, you know, what really got him through those hard times, what really pushed him to, you know, be the successful person that he is, even though, you know, different field, you know, the music industry, but I think the mental, you know, fortitude and strength is what will, you know, prevail in any type of situation, whether that be nursing or, you know, podcasts or you know whatever doesn't matter i think it you know the mental strength there is what will really show through yeah 100 percent. okay this is a our closing question uh if you were to give advice to any new nursing student what would you give them new nursing student uh don't be afraid to make mistakes don't be afraid to ask questions or not know the answer because I don't still know the answer. And I critically take care of people every day. There's again, back to that learning, Mm. the desire, the want to have more information and, um, you know, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations where you don't maybe have, you know, a lot of times if I'm doing something new, I grab a nurse, I grab a buddy. I'm like, Hey, I understand this. I've never done it before. I want, you know, will you just be here to help me or will you be, you're more experienced. You've been a nurse for 20 years. I've been a nurse for only five years, you know, being able to find yourself, be uncomfortable, embrace the uncomfortableness of situations that, Mm. you know, especially in healthcare, it's not always going to be an easy road. So as a student, don't shy away. You know, I find. Yeah. Cause you almost have to fail to learn. Exactly. And specifically in. Absolutely. That's what simulation is for. And that would also probably help bridge the gap, you know, having those failures early in say a non life threatening, Mm -hmm. you know, scenario where, okay, the VR patient passed away, but somebody in the actual bed didn't die. Now, you know, for the next time I'm going to react differently to that. Right. So that's me, Luke. It has been an honor 
thank you so much for your time. We will let you get back to whatever you need to do next in your day. And um, thank you so much for being on the Immersive Medical Podcast. Hey, thank you guys for having me. I'm glad to uh, share my thoughts and let you guys, you know, have a conversation with you guys. Seems like it was just a, you know, casual conversation. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for having me. Absolutely. Of course. Okay, listeners, have you ever thought about the difference between simply editing something and truly authoring it? Devin, that all sounds like the same thing. Not quite, Connor. Editing is just making changes to someone else's content, but authoring? That's crafting something from scratch. With VR Patients' latest Infusions authoring tool update, healthcare educators can author their own intricate simulations. <laughs> that sounds empowering. It is, but it goes beyond that. What you author with VR Patients, you own. Your creations are safeguarded as your intellectual property. Imagine being the architect of your own virtual training experiences, defining outcomes, and owning the rights to them forever. So it's like having a patent on an invention? Exactly. Clinical educators aren't just passive technology users. They are authors, innovators in their domain. With VR patients, they're creating the future of healthcare simulation. <laughs> Incredible. For those looking to become pioneers in healthcare education, where should they start? Begin your authoring journey and safeguard your creations with VR Patients. Learn more at vrpatients.com. Remember, folks, the future isn't just about using innovations. It's about owning them. Dive in at vrpatients.com.